Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Today I'm delighted to be speaking with James Bradley, Australian writer and critic, about his extraordinary fifth novel, Ghost Species, published by Hamish Hamilton here in Australia in April of this year. James studied law and philosophy at the University of Adelaide and worked as a lawyer before becoming a writer, editor and book critic. His first novel, Rack, was published in 1997 and he has since written three adult novels, a book of poetry and a number of YA novels. He was twice named as one of the Sydney Morning Herald's best young Australian novelists. His books have won or been shortlisted for many major Australian and international literary awards, including the Miles Franklin. And in 2012, he won the prestigious Pascal Prize for Critical Writing. James writes for The Guardian, The Times Literary Supplement, The Washington Post and The Monthly, amongst others. James, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Hi, it's fantastic to be here. It's wonderful to have you here talking about your book. I'm going to ask you my standard opening question, which is what is The Ghost Species about? Ghost Species is a novel about a project to essentially re-engineer the Earth's climate. And there's a secret project within that where what they want to do is to clone a Neanderthal child. And it's about that project and about the, the cloning of that child who ends up being called Eve and about her growing up over about 20 years against this kind of backdrop of, I guess, kind of hastening climate catastrophe. James, could you just read a short extract from the book, please? Sure. This is from the beginning of the book. Some nights when the wind is up and the power flickers and fails, she tells the child's stories, as if this thread of words might be enough to bind them together, to bear them through all that is to come, like a boat or a leviathan. She knows she's not alone in despairing for what the future holds, in wanting to find ways to hold it back for as long as possible. But no matter how hard she tries, she cannot keep it at bay forever. For a time is coming, soon, sooner than she wants it to be, sooner than either of them will be ready, when the child will have to venture forth into the world we have made and find a way to survive. The onrush of that time, the feeling that their years together are already falling away, shadows her life a drumbeat of loss behind the moments of joy, a reminder that every instant is precious. But when they are here, isolated by the power or the wind, it is not time's flight that frightens her. Instead, it is the knowledge that the child is alone and that one day soon she will understand that. And so she does what mothers have done since the beginning of time, since before we were human. She draws filaments from the darkness and weaves them together to create meaning, purpose, shape, arranging the elements to reveal the world, or perhaps to make a new one. Before the child, if you had suggested this might be something she could do, she would have laughed, told you she was not a storyteller. But in the years since the child arrived in her life, she's found the habits of breath and suspense that make a story live were already there, waiting within her, just as the eagerness for it is in the child, her capacity for rapt attention. How far back does this strand of connection go, she sometimes wonders. Did we require language to discover story? Or did language evolve to sustain story? Are we the only animals that tell stories? Do the birds, the fish, the elephants, the whales and dolphins? And if they do, what shape do those stories take? For surely story is as much a way of being in the world as a way of describing it. A means of comprehending the way all that surrounds us hums through us as we live. James, thank you. The book opens with two characters, Jay and Kate, being flown by helicopter into Tasmania. Who are they and what fields of work are they in? Um, Jay and Kate are scientists um, and they are being flown to Tasmania uh, to work on a project, of a, a de-extinction project, basically. Um, which is aimed at bringing back, um, bringing back extinct species and and resurrecting uh, lost lost species. And they find out about that because when they land in Tasmania, they're taken to a facility and they're they're introduced to somebody. Who who is he? Tell us a bit 
about yeah. who it is that's running this program? Well, the person who meets them is uh, a man called Davis Harkin. And Davis is a tech billionaire who owns a social network. He's vastly wealthy. Uh, he's set up this thing called the Huckin Foundation, um, which is doing all kinds of work around the world in the kind of environmental space. Um, and I mean, I look, you know, he's one of these tech billionaires who has the kind of capacity to reverse gravity around them. One of these people who has just, you know, levels of money that are unimaginable to the rest of us. You mentioned the project. Can you give us a little bit more information about what exactly is the project that he wants them to work on? You know, the project has many parts and that's one of the things that is happening in the book is that, you know, there's, there's very, there's lots of different things going on, but, but the core of the project is a kind of scheme to bring back extinct species. Now he's doing this for a couple of reasons. One of them is that he thinks that he can slow the melting of the permafrost and the release of methane from the permafrost, which is a massive kind of tipping point in, in the kind of climate crisis, um, by recreating an ice age environment in that, world, in that part of the world. So what they want to do is they want to bring back mammoths, they want to bring back woolly rhinoceroses, they want to bring back all of those animals and basically stop the permafrost melting by by putting them back and stamping down the forest and and recreating the permafrost as it would have been 12,000 years ago. But inside of that, he's got this other project, which is what he wants to do is he wants to bring back Neanderthals. Um, and why does he want to do that? Because he's a megalomaniac. Um, <laughs> um, oh, look, but there, there is a kind of serious... His, his belief is that we've reached a point in our evolution in the planet's history where humanity has become the driving force in the earth's environment. We are the, we are the most powerful force on earth and that that is creating a lot of the problems we see around us. And his view is that what we've come to do is to think of ourselves as as kind of overlords, you know, and, and he wants, he wants to bring this species back as he thinks that if what we do is we suddenly have to see us, you know, encounter another human species to, to, to see other humans who are like us, but not us, it will alter our sense of where we sit in the place of things and help us kind of reimagine our relationship with the planet. This whole idea of de-extinction, is that something that you completely made up or is there some basis in fact? For that. No, 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 it's not made up at all. Um, it's, um, there's a number of kind of de-extinction programs going on. I mean, the, the basic idea is what you do is you find you either, I mean, it's, it's the concept behind Jurassic Park. What you do is you go and get the genetic material for an extinct species. And if you can't find the genetic material for an extinct species, you re-engineer it in some way by finding relatives of them now and, and, and fiddling around with their genome. And then you use that to create, you know, to kind of recreate the animals. Um, and look, it's one of those things that's kind of sitting on the edge of science fiction, science fact. It's certainly something people are talking about and trying to do. Um, you know, they, certainly with the, the thylacine, you know, it's got to the point of having a number of the building blocks in place, for instance. Yes, what's that? I read about that, but I didn't know what a thylacine is. What is that? Oh, a Tasmanian tiger. Uh, the They were a marsupial predator that... Um, lived by the time of European invasion in Tasmania. Before that, they lived on the mainland as well. Um, and they, you know, big, stripy Tasmanian, like, like, a, like a marsupial dog, basically. Um, and they were wiped out. The last ones died in, in the 1930s. And they're a really great candidate for de-extinction because we've got good genetic material. We've got close relatives that you could do it with. Um, yeah, so the, the kind of thing you could bring back. But it, it's a very problematic concept de-extinction for a number of reasons and one of them is that you know an animal isn't just it's kind of genetic code and an animal is a complex you know animals exist within these kind of very complex relationships with all of the other species around them with the landscape they inhabit with their own members of their own communities and, and you know just bringing something back from the dead, just recreating this kind of biological thing is not really the same as recreating the species. I'm glad that you raised that because the next thing I wanted to ask you about was Jay and Kate's reaction when this is put to them. So Davis explains that it'll be part of a larger de-extinction program, but what he specifically wants them to work on, and this is because 
their expertise is in the area of um, DNA. What he specifically wants them to work on is this recreation of a Neanderthal. Jay is very enthusiastic, but Kate has real reservations. She has ethical concerns about this. Can you tell us a little bit about what those concerns are? Well, I mean, I think there's ethical concerns around all of this stuff, personally. But, I mean, Kate's, Kate's concerns are that, you know, you're creating a human life. You know, you are creating a person. And that, you know, that is, that's not something that should be entered into lightly. I mean, recreating a mammoth is, is, is bad enough. You know, this kind of intelligent, conscious creature. You know, um, recreating a human being who's always going to be different from the rest of us, who's going to grow up you know, different from the rest of us, who's going to, you know, have a life that's constrained by the, the terms on which they've been created. It's a really, it's a really big decision. And she, she's not comfortable with the idea that this, this man, Davis, is so rich that he can just make this kind of thing happen. And she's concerned, she uses the expression at one point in discussions with Jay, that they're, what they're doing is playing God, like they're creating a human being in a laboratory. Now, that, of course, made me think about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and I wondered if that was a novel that had influenced you. Yeah. Uh, look, the book's got – Frankenstein is one of the kind of touchstones in the book. And certainly when I was writing the book, one of the things I was very aware of is that, you know, it's, it's kind of playing – I mean, you know, there's little bits of other books mm. being touched on all the way through, but Frankenstein's an incredibly important one in it. And, it, and one of the things I think is really fascinating about Frankenstein is it's a book that kind of comes out of a moment of climate crisis. I mean, it was written – the reason they were locked up in the villa mm. and it was raining all summer was that they were in the middle of this volcanic eruption. The summer hadn't happened. It had rained all summer. Um, so they kind of made this book, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, and Shelley herself is such an amazing figure. I mean, that, that kind of this incredibly brilliant young woman, um, you know, all of those children that she lost in the awful Shelley, um, uh, and then she made this extraordinary visionary kind of books. I mean, certainly it's, it's absolutely one of the things that's in there. One of the things you said about de-extinction was that it was a powerful metaphor and that was why you'd specifically chosen. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things, and we kind of inhabit a very strange moment. You know, we, we live in a time when, Time is out of joint. And that's because if you think about kind of climate crisis, at some level, it's a kind of crisis of temporality. You know, what we, have, we live in this kind of moment where geological time, geological change, the melting of the ice caps, you know, the, the kind of transformation of, of the globe, some, the, the things that should take place over centuries and millennia are taking place over months and years. So you have this kind of collapsing of geological time into human time. And it just seemed to me that this idea of de-extinction is such an amazing metaphor for that, for that kind of idea that the deep time is kind of leaking into or erupting into the present. Um, and also for this kind of sense that time is just out of joint, you know, that, that we live in this kind of weird moment where past, future and present are all kind of collapsing into each other. You've referred to that concept of deep time. I have to say, excuse my ignorance, that I didn't know what that was. I had to go away and look it up. Could you talk a little bit for our listeners about what this concept of deep time is? What does it mean and why is it significant? Um, deep time, <laughs> deep time, like most of these ideas, actually has a kind of history. It's, 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 it's usually attributed to a guy called um, Ferdinand Braudel, who's a um, historian, but he, he wanted to talk about you know, his argument was that normally when we think about time, we think about human time, kind of social time, and that takes place in kind of months and years and what we see things happening in, that, in those kinds of terms. But his argument was that there's also this kind of what he, used to, what he called the long durée, you know, and, and it's this idea that you have a much deeper frame of reference, you know, so, so time that stretches over centuries, millennia, um, even millions of years, and that, that kind of idea of time, time is something incredibly deep and ancient, is what 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 that's talking about. So, I mean, that kind of idea of geological time, or, or um, times that are of much greater much greater duration than the kind of social time we normally inhabit. James, I know that place is very important in your novels, and your choices are very deliberate. Why did you choose to set this novel in Tasmania? Um. It was very deliberate, actually. I mean, Tasmania is such a 
I mean, I guess kind of for two reasons. First of all, Tasmania is, it's taken on this kind of significance in the contemporary world. You know, so it's become when people think about escaping climate catastrophe, mm. you know, they're going to run to Tasmania or they're going to run to New Zealand. Those are mm. the kinds of places that you flee to. You know, it's a, it's a utopia with artisanal cheese and whiskey. You know, so it, it has this kind of odd, odd, place in the kind of contemporary imagination where it's simultaneously a place of kind of primeval forest and bush and this kind of ancient untouched kind of and this is an imagining of it rather than the reality um ancient untouched kind of landscape but also a kind of refuge from climate climate um catastrophe but also what fascinated me about it is that once you're writing about extinction once you're writing about um these kind of ideas of breakdown, you know, there's this incredibly dark history sitting mm. behind Tasmania, this kind of sense that, you know, it's, it's, it's where the thylacine disappeared from. But there's also that, that kind of history of kind of genocidal, genocidal violence against, against the Aboriginal peoples who lived there, um, the kind of attempts to kind of erase their culture. And it seemed to me that that was something that once it was set in Tasmania just sits in the back of the book like a kind of unexploded bomb you know that mm. that kind of sense that when you're talking about all of these questions about kind of extinction climate change all of those kinds of things that kind of colonial violence is always sitting there in the background um so yeah it was very very deliberate because it was both a kind of parodying i guess that that kind of fantasy that Tasmania is somewhere we can run run to but also because I wanted this kind of brooding unspoken presence sitting in the back of the book. Malevolent but threatening sort of presence. Threatening you know I mean and and because those ideas of you know colonialism climate they're all very tangled up with each other you know and, and you know some of the some of the social scientists, you know, people talk about the Anthropocene, that kind of idea that we live in. We live in a moment of um, a new geological era, which is de- determined by humans. But then you'll get other social scientists say we shouldn't be calling it the Anthropocene. We should be calling it the Plantation Scene, <laughs> you know, because it, it essentially we date it back to the origins of, of colonialism. You know, so I mean, it, it's a very they're very closely connected ideas. And James, when is the novel set? When it opens, it seems to me that we're pretty close to the present. Is that right? Yeah, it, it, it opens kind of now, you know, and, and I want it very much. So it, is, it starts kind of now or tomorrow or yesterday, you know, um, and it goes for about 20 or 25 years. Um, but I really wanted that sense that it's, I guess, that it's sitting right on the kind of breaking edge of where we are at the moment, that kind of sense that, you know, in... There's a, I wanted to have a kind of immediacy in the language and a sense that lots of the bits of it will feel recognisable to people because it's kind of indistinguishable, particularly in those early sections, from where we are now. Mm. Let's talk a little bit then about Baby Eve, the Neanderthal child that is created in the laboratory as planned. The way that they create this baby is they make an embryo, they implant it in the surrogate, and then Baby Eve is born. And you have a lovely description of what she looks like. She's them, but not them. Human, but not human. Kate very quickly becomes attached to baby Eve. What does she do and why does she do it? <laughs> um, well, she, Kate, Kate arrives in the book with a whole series of problems of her own. And then one of the things I think about the book is that it's a very, although when you describe it, it sounds like this kind of high concept science fiction novel it's kind of not it's a very intimate very domestic kind of novel in lots of ways about the relationship between Kate and the child Mm. uh, between Kate and Eve um and so she arrives with a lot of problems of her own around she's she's lost a baby she she's had this terrible childhood um and she sees Eve growing up in this place and realizes that she's become party to this appalling thing that she kind of can't live with and she decides to to run away with Eve and try and raise her on her own. Kate takes baby Eve away from the laboratory. She runs away, doesn't tell anybody, doesn't tell Jay, doesn't tell Davis. And one of, her, one of the reasons she does that, I think it's really interesting the way you describe it, is that she feels that Eve has the right to be, to self-determination, to make decisions about herself. And 
Kate's concern was that if she stayed there in the lab, and you, you make this reference a few times, she'll just be treated like a lab rat, like a lab animal under observation. What are, this, what are some of the concerns that Kate has about Eve's future? Um, well, I think it's that she won't, you know, that she'll grow up as a kind of experiment. I mean, she, there, there's a point where she has an argument with Jay and, and there, you know, she's saying, I wanted to grow up as a kind of normal child or as close to normal as possible. And he's like, what do you think she's going to join the school band? You know, so what she wants is her to be able to grow up in a situation where she is the one who determines her own, I guess, her own future, where she, you know, is loved and where she has people around her who love her, not for what she is, I guess, but for who, who she is. Um, and I, I, I suspect for Kate, that's very much about a, a kind of belief that for as long as she is in a scientific context, Eve's not being seen as a person. She's mm. being seen as a subject. And, and Kate wants her not to be there. You know, she wants her to, to kind of grow up, to grow up as herself. And in an odd kind of way, that comes into a different problem later on, which I suspect we're going to talk about. But, you know, when you get to the question of what won't you tell her about who she is, you know. So in the first couple of years when Kate's got Eve in hiding, Kate is watching her very closely. And there's, there's a few different things, a few different points. She notices that Eve is a little bit different socially from other children, small children, that she's a bit warier bit less attuned to social contact but in almost all the other ways she seems just like a little human baby or toddler she gurgles and she laughs she's as intelligent as a human baby and clearly Kate bonds very closely with Eve in the way that a mother would with a child and vice versa Eve bonds with Kate it seems to me and I'm no genius in saying this I know it's something you've talked about but one of the things you're trying to explore in this novel is what does it mean to be human Am I right about that? Is that one of the one of the concepts that you were really wanting to explore? Yeah, I mean, I was really fascinated by that idea of someone who is not quite us, you know, someone who is just that step away from us, you know. And so Eve is Eve is cognitively slightly different. You know, she's as intelligent as us, but she she's not as good with groups. Um, she struggles with some stuff that we do kind of routinely about kind of lying and violence and power. She finds all of them confusing. But what I wanted, I think, really to do was, because the book does something in the middle where you kind of move around and, and you move into kind of Eve's viewpoint. It did seem to me that once, once, and this is kind of what Davis is doing as well, once you have another kind of human being there, once you have other eyes you look back at us and you see us very differently. You suddenly see all of these things that we don't notice about ourselves kind of revealed. And that seemed really fascinating to me, the way that idea of this, this kind of person who's us but not us might suddenly reveal things about ourselves that we perhaps didn't know were there or perhaps don't feel so good about once we see them. And even Kate is exposed to that by being Eve's mother. So at one point when Eve is teased as a child, particularly cruelly, by a bunch of kids who mimic her as if she was an ape, and that, of course, is one of the issues about her appearance. She looks pretty human, but there's definitely an element of the low brow, the wide cheekbones, there's definitely an element of the Neanderthal there. So these kids, as kids do, have seized on that and they start mimicking her as if she's an ape. And Kate comes upon them doing this. And Kate reflects upon... I think something you've described very beautifully, what, what you say, the consoling cruelty of the human race, its cupidity and cruelty, its heedless destruction of that which it doesn't understand. And it seemed to me that that was something else that you wanted to look at, which is what it must be like to be a mother of a child who in whatever way is slightly different from other children and how isolating an experience that can be. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, that idea of isolation, because, you know, there's a kind of physical isolation in the book where she takes herself away and hides herself. But, you know, really, I suppose that's just a way of thinking about that kind of larger isolation of having this child who's different in some way. And, and you know, the reaction of those kids, I thought, it was always interesting to me because one of the things, you know, as you say, Eve does look mostly like us. You know, but, but, you know, we, we as 
as a species are designed to kind of recognize our own kind. And there's all of that kind of weird stuff where we see faces which aren't quite right and we kind of know something's not quite right you know, or something is not, you know, that person doesn't compute for me. Um, and, and so that's one of the things you see happening when people encounter Eve. But, yeah, very, very much that sense of a child, of how isolating and how difficult it can be to have a child that you feel needs to be protected in some way. When Eve reaches puberty, she becomes much more conscious of her appearance and of the fact that she does look different from other children. And eventually Jay and Kate make a decision that they will tell her about the truth of her origins. And at that point, as you, I think, have foreshadowed, the novel pivots. So up until that time, the story has been told very much from Kate's point of view as, as the mother of Eve. And then it shifts. You've got a great uh, title for that section, I think. I think it's, is it, I was a teenage Neanderthal. And at that point, the point of view pivots from being Kate's point of view to being Eve's point of view. And the rest of the story is then told from Eve's point of view. Why did you choose that structure? Why did you choose to make that pivot between the different points of view? Um, well, the honest answer is, of course, that, you know, because that was just what I ended up doing, which is usually the answer to these questions. But it was, I mean, it was actually really important to me right from the beginning that Eve would have a kind of voice in the novel. I didn't want her to be, you know, I didn't want to replicate the kind of dilemmas of the early parts of the book about that kind of scientific process by making her a subject. I wanted her to be a character in her own right. And it just seemed to me a really fascinating moment to do it. So rather than doing the child Eve, you do the kind of teenage Eve. Because once we're teenagers, we're so weird anyway. <laughs> you know, our bodies are so strange. You know, we're, we're kind of growing in all of these unpredictable ways. And uh, we have all of these kind of uncontrollable feelings, you know. And it just seemed to me really fascinating if that weirdness was kind of made literal in the case of Eve, you know. Mm. So, so but, but it is very much about I wanted her... I wanted her to have her own presence in the book, to be a kind of character in the book, to be a, you know, for, for her world to be kind of represented in the book. So I didn't want her to be a subject. But also because, you know, as I said before, I do think there's something about once you switch it around and you start looking at the characters from the other side, you start to see them very differently. Mm. And, and that's, that's very much what that kind of second half of the book is about. Can you tell us a little bit about then what is it like to be Eve? What, what are her experiences? What is life like for her? Well, and that's one of the things I think is interesting about Eve, isn't it? It's that in an odd kind of way, she's human. So in a lot kind of way, she's not that different to us, you know, but she is, she finds, as I said before, she finds groups quite difficult. So she finds, you know, there the was some science suggesting that Neanderthals lived in smaller groups than humans. Um, so I had this kind of idea that maybe they they would struggle with kind of larger groups of people. Um, so she's very bonded to the people who are close to her and she finds people she doesn't know quite difficult to, to kind of get to groups with over time. She's um, extremely alert. She's extremely observant. Her senses are better than ours. So she's got a really strong sense of smell, for instance. Um, and she, what she doesn't have though is that kind of, desire for violence she finds lying difficult you know there's actually a really crucial moment in the book where she should probably lie and she doesn't um and she but i i guess in the end the kind of thing that really defines her is this kind of sense of separation this sense that she is someone who doesn't have a place and and the book's very much about her i guess trying to find that place as time goes on in a sense, some of the fears that Kate identified before she was even literally created are really realised, aren't they? When we see things through Eve's point of view, we see the, the things that Kate was concerned about, about her being isolated, about it being difficult for her to make friends. How was she going to go to school? How would she fit in with other children? Those concerns that Kate had right from the start. Um, when we then see things through Eve's experience, we see Eve experiencing really the very things that Kate was concerned about. Absolutely. And, you know, all of that stuff about trying to find... You know, hard enough for a normal teenager, hard, right? It's hard enough for a normal teenager, you know, and, and that's kind of what 
kind of where I started from in those sections. I wanted to think about what it would be like to be this person who was kind of radically different. James, one of your children's a teenager now, right? Is that she is? Yeah. So you've, <laughs> you've got some insight into into teenage behaviour. <laughs> I'd happily have less. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. No, no. I mean, I think that 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 kind of question of you know, I mean, I think the book is very much about, I guess, kind of children and parents and parenting and and a whole series of those kind of questions, both because, you know, it's kind of been written been written while I've been bringing kids up and trying to trying to think about all of those those questions for myself and all of the things that are good and difficult about bringing up bringing up children. Um, yeah, and it was also, I mean, the book's very much, you know, kind of, my 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 father died just as I was beginning it. My mother died just as I was finishing it, and and so it's you know that that kind of question of kind of parenting and parents and children something has been very much on my mind. One thing that I think really shines through in the book is that the strength of the relationship between Eve and Kate. There's no doubt that there's a maternal bond, that there's a mother-child bond there. And I think, in a sense, you almost answer your own question, don't you? In in terms of what does it mean to be human? Is Eve human? I mean, part of the answer seems to me to be, does it even matter at all? When you look at the way that Eve interacts with Kate, who's in the position of her mother, there's no doubt that that is a very close mother-child relationship. And yet it did seem to me that it raised the question, well, does it even matter how we define her? That's really interesting, yeah. And I mean, I do think that in a sense, I mean, I talked before about a species, you know, a species is not just its DNA, you know, a species is the kind of system of connections and entanglements and relationships that kind of bind it to bind it to the world. And the same with humans. I mean, you know, our humanity doesn't reside in our genetic code. Our humanity resides in the ways in which we connect to other people. It resides in the culture that we build around ourselves. It resides in those kind of really close bonds of kind of love and affection and care that we bring to each other. James, let's talk now about climate change. This novel is set very much uh, against a background of climate change. As you've said, it plays out over a period of about 20 years, starting with the present, and there's a very, how can I express it, there's a very clear background of this rapidly escalating climate change as we're reading and following the narrative and the story of Eve and of Kate and Davis and of Jay. In the background, there's these constant references to floods and fires and hurricanes, many of which are taking place overseas, not in Australia. There are moose and deer that are dying by the millions in Canada. And then in Australia itself, we see Eve and Kate experience earthquakes. And then we get an Australian summer, eerily like our own, I might say, goes until May and starts again in October. This is not the first novel that you've chosen to write about climate change in. You did that also in your book, Clade. How difficult is it to write about climate change? Um, look, I think for a novelist, there's a series, I mean, there's kind of several answers to that question. One of them Yes, is, I should have said for, in fiction. Yeah, in fiction. I mean, I think that when you're writing fiction, climate change certainly presents a series of kind of hurdles for for writers. You know, I mean, it's 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 this huge distributed thing. It's a global phenomenon. It's it's happening over kind of years and decades. You know, it's it, it's <laughs> ten years ago we probably would have said it's incremental. I'm not sure it feels very incremental at the moment. Um, it seems rather more spasmodic than that just at the moment. But um. But you know, the, 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 but it's a kind of inhuman process. So it's the tools of novels are essentially those of kind of social life, and so there are a series of challenges about how do you how do you represent that? How do you find ways of talking about these kind of large, kind of climactic geological kind of processes with the tools of fiction? Um, and, and, and I think they are very real challenges and certainly in Clade I was kind of grappling with them in various ways and in in this book you know there's a kind of metaphorical conversation going on I guess because you've got this idea of kind of de-extinction so you can think about extinction you can think about disappearance you can think about all that kind of thing but I also think I mean there's a kind of personal 
dimension to it as well, I think, which is about how do you how do you write about something that's happening all around you? You know, how do you write about something that's moving so fast? And one of the things that's been really, I guess, kind of uncanny, uh, frightening for me about the last five to ten years is watching the lots of things I put into clay, particularly which were science fiction at the time and have come true in the last five or six years since it came out. You know, and certainly with this book, you know, I was kind of writing it as you could feel everything speeding up around you. So you've got this constant sense that you're writing stuff, which is fiction. And you were the, edit, editing it, I read, during the time of the bushfires in January of this year. Absolutely, you know. And so there's a lot of fire in the book, you know. But, but you know, suddenly I was writing it while we were in the middle of, you know, a kind of real climate catastrophe, you know. And so that kind of sense that reality is overtaking you like there's this kind of wave washing over you it's not even catching up is it it's actually overtaking you it's overtaking you and that is it's really challenging uh, for a novelist because you know novels you know you don't write novels fast i mean for me that's one of the attractions of writing non-fiction in the area is that you can kind of write faster but i mean that kind of sense that what you're doing is is the kind of the reality is washing over you even as you're writing it is quite it's it's it can be very disconcerting you wrote a piece for The Guardian in January about the bushfires and one of the things that you wrote about was the need for, and I really like this expression, staying with the trouble and you then go on to explain not shying away from reality. Could you just talk a little bit about that concept of staying with the trouble? Um, so the concept is a philosopher called Don Haraway talks about staying with the trouble and she thinks, I mean, what she's saying is that what, what we need to learn to do is to not spend our whole time worried about imagined futures. You know, what we need to do is to kind of sit with the world that we're in, to look at the world that we're in and to kind of learn to recognise it, you know, both for the, the terrifying things in it but also the kind of beautiful things in it. And the argument is that this kind of process of, you know, staying with trouble is a way of, I guess, kind of, making us grapple with the world that we've made rather than turning away from the world that we've made. And it just seems to me to be a really useful idea in the context of particularly of climate stuff because I think we're all very good at not, I think we're all very good at not thinking about these things. You know, I think we're all really good at, 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 at not paying attention to what's going on. And that kind of process of denial, I think, leaks into every, every aspect of our lives. You know, I mean, you know, if you spend any time in the climate literature, you know, the, the place we are is utterly catastrophic, but you wouldn't know it from our society. You know, we live in this society which doesn't kind of talk about it, doesn't think about it. It's always number six on our list of concerns. And that's, you know, the, that's the dissonance that you talk about quite a lot, James, in your writing, the dissonance between what is actually happening and how we're all just going about our daily lives as if everything's fine. Yeah, absolutely. And things are not fine. I mean, and I think one of the things I've got a friend who talks about the knowledge, you know, and she says that she says that once you've once you've digested the reality of where we are on climate, there is this dreadful thing that you know and that most other people don't seem to have their heads around and that, you know, her, she says that the knowledge is really hard to live with. Um, and and once known, it can't be unknown. Once known can't be unknown. Although I have to say, one of the things that is interesting to me is that once known can't be unknown, but, you know, you get pretty good at compartmentalising it. Um, but, you know, but it is that kind of this thing that once known you can't unknow and which kind of changes everything. And I must say it is, I'm often struck by that idea of, of hers because certainly when I, you know, when I listen to, say, journalists and politicians talking about this stuff, you know, as I listen to them asking questions about, you know, asking Scott Morrison about whether we're going to meet, you know, kind of Kyoto targets, you know, as you just kind of say, this isn't a relevant question. Like we are so far down this rabbit hole. Why aren't you saying to him, you know, unless we, you know, to have any chance of avoiding catastrophe at this point, we have to have radical change within 10 years. You know, if they digested the knowledge, if they'd kind of taken that stuff on board, they'd be asking different questions. James, I'm wondering about the role of the fiction writer at this time and I'm wondering if this concept of staying with the trouble is the reason why you write 
fiction, we'll, we'll come to your non-fiction in a moment, but why you write fiction about climate change. Is it because that is the role, the role of all artists, I suppose, but in your case, the role of the writer, to stay with the trouble, to look it in the eye, to accept it and to make people think about where we're going? Is that why you write about climate change? Yeah, I suspect it is. I mean, I think I, think I write about it partly because, I mean, I think I write about it partly because I don't know what else I'd write about. I mean, it seems to me that it is the huge consuming, shaping force in our world and, in a sense, not talking about it is kind of enacting a kind of denial. And there's certainly something like Amitav Ghosh's argument. I mean, he, he talks about the Great Derangement and says that we kind of live in this society where we're cruising towards catastrophe and nobody talks about it. Um, so, I mean, I guess there's that sense that what you're trying to do is to talk about something, to make something manifest that people don't want to think about, it, to find ways of bringing it into, world, into the world in a way that they've got to kind of look at it and grapple with it and think about it. So, I mean, I do think that that's one thing you're doing with fiction is you can create, I mean, I think climate change is very difficult to think about. It's very difficult to imagine. Fiction gives you a way of doing both of those things. I suspect also, though, for me, I write about it because I want to understand it. You know, I want to understand what's going on. And I think also because I talked before about that idea of the knowledge, but, you know, it is a way of... Because when you're, once you're writing fiction about it, you are creating a space where you don't have to inhabit that dissonance anymore, where what you can do is mm. actually say, well, this is the reality. What do, what do I do with it now? Rather than going, well, I kind of know what the reality is, but I'm not going to think about it today because it's too terrible. Or I know what the reality is and I'm walking around in a world where everyone else is ignoring it and it makes me feel like I'm a crazy person. Um, so, I mean, I guess there's a level at which once you're writing fiction, once you're making fiction, once you're making art in the space, you feel, I guess you feel you're attending to the reality of the world in a way that I guess the world itself isn't a lot of the time. You've spoken about the ethical urgency of writing about climate change, but also the futility of the gesture in the face of such enormity. Those are your words. Do you really believe that it is futile? Um, <laughs> probably depends what day you ask me. Um, look, I think that the, I think that I, I find, I find this conversation more difficult because I find it quite difficult to, I always feel very uncomfortable claiming a kind of significance for what I do. I think that at one level, this is something I can do. You know, and I, I'm i probably more used to writing books and writing articles and trying to do work in that space than I am, you know, doing data entry for Greenpeace. Do, do you know what I mean? I mean, I yeah. feel like the, the contribution I can make there is probably greater. Um, and there is that sense that if you want, just at a personal level, you know, the, the, the greatest kind of antidote to despair is action. You know, you kind of do something, you don't feel so hopeless. Um, but I also think that fiction, perhaps it doesn't change people's minds, but, you know, perhaps it does change a few minds. Poetry um, makes nothing happen, right? Yeah, po you, know, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't said poetry makes nothing happen, except poetry does sometimes make things happen. It does. You know, I mean... Rachel Carson's Silent Spring begins with that amazing vision of a world devastated by devastated by pesticides. And that book changed the world. You know, so I mean there is a level at which fiction can change the world. You know, and, and I, I feel like we should we should try as fiction writers to recognize that, you know, the work we do Matters. Matters. You know, I mean, having said all that, I also think that, I mean, I'm always a bit wary about this kind of instrumentalising of fiction, you know, because it seems to me that if your test for why the novel matters is whether it can change the world, probably probably it's going to fail. I think that there is something about the way, you know, fiction allows us to see the world around us. You know, it's a way of recording the world. It's a way of speaking to the world and representing it and, and showing it to us. And I think particularly in this field where, 
so much of our thinking about this is characterized by denial and evasion and, you know, carefully not thinking about things. If the fiction is showing it to us, that matters. I know that you're not a fan of the term cli-fi or climate fiction, which is often used to describe novels like yours that engage with climate change. Why don't you like that description or that title? Look, I don't like as a strong term. Um, look, <laughs> I look, I actually think it's been a really useful, you know, I think it is a, that, that kind of idea that there is a body of work about climate change has actually been a re, really useful, I guess, kind of promotional, to put it cr- crudely, but, you know, in kind of getting people to think about books in this kind of space. I don't think as a way of thinking about the books it's very useful because it seems to me, I mean, first of all, it seems to me that the books are all very diverse and they don't really have any kind of generic features, so it's not really a genre. But but it's also that, you know, it seems to me that climate change is something that's so immense, so transformative. You know, it's a kind of condition like modernity that kind of touches everything and that, you know, in we'd be better off thinking about it in those terms, you know, thinking about it as this, it's the kind of condition we inhabit rather than a kind of fiction. If you're writing books in which which is set in the contemporary world in which climate change does not feature, you know, in which kind of environmental crisis is not part of the kind of fabric of the book. You know, those books are a fantasy. Do you know what I mean? There's a level at which it is the defining feature of our world. It is increasingly going to be the thing that kind of shapes our lives. And the fact that we don't talk about it, that kind of denial and evasion seems to me to be something that, that we should all be, be uncomfortable about you know and it, and it does seem to me that that kind of it's part of the dissonance that you're talking about it's part about. of the dissonance it's part of that dissonance you know so so it is it does seem to me that kind of bundling the books up in that way is is not very useful because it seems to me it stretches out and touches things in all kinds of ways and doing like that also prevents you i think from seeing how deeply interconnected so many of these crises are you know the the kind of crisis over kind of you know capitalism, the crisis around race relations, mm-hmm. you know, all of these things, they're all connected. You know, they're all part of this kind of larger crisis that we're kind of inhabiting at the moment. And climate is part of that. But, you know, by kind of bundling it in as one thing, you, you kind of turn it into science fiction and place it over there instead of saying this should be central to our way of thinking about our world. One of the questions you said that you have asked yourself is at what point does hope become just another form of denial? Would you like to unpack that a little bit for us? Um, look, it's certainly something that this book was about trying to think my way through. I mean, certainly when I was writing Clade, one of the things I wanted that book to do was to, you know, I wanted to give people a kind of sense of what it might be to like to live through climate change. Um, but I wanted it to kind of open up a kind of space for possibility, for political possibility, to kind of take away that sense that climate change was an endpoint and show that it was, you know, something that we're going to have to live through and find our way through. Um, and I guess like a lot of people who work around this space, I, you know, I tend to emphasise those ideas of possibility, those ideas of contingency, those ideas that the future is not yet set. Um, and I guess the problem is at the moment is that we're now reaching a point where the future is actually set. We don't have any choice about what's coming next, you know, and, and you see it around something like sea level rise. I mean, people, I don't know if think sea level rise is fascinating, but I mean, you know, all of the projections are at the moment that it may well be up to a metre or more by the end of the century. You know, that's going to alter our world beyond, beyond kind of imagination, I suspect, in all kinds of ways. We've got no choice about that anymore. It's already locked in. It's going to happen whatever we do. Um, and I guess there's something about once you start to go back to the idea of the knowledge, once you start kind of engaging with the knowledge, you, this, idea that, this idea that we talk about possibility, that we talk about contingency, that we talk about hope, starts to feel like a weird kind of way of avoiding the reality that's already there. It's a fascinating bunch of people out of the UK, um, an academic called Jem Bendel set up something he calls the Deep Adaptation Forum, and they're about people who just say we need to recognise the world's gone um, and start preparing for what comes next when it falls over. They just say, look, you know, 
we're beyond the point where we're beyond the point where we can avoid catastrophe. And so I, I guess, I guess I worry a lot that that idea of talking about hope, about talking about this kind of free floating idea that we might make things better rather than recognizing where we are, um, is a way of avoiding recognizing where we are. And having said all of those depressing things, I actually think that kind of idea that we must be ruthlessly honest intellectually, but simultaneously we should never lose sight of the idea that, you know, of kind of human possibility, human inventiveness, all of those kinds of things. And if you wanted to ask, you know, and my position would be that once you start saying we are on track for catastrophe, once we start saying catastrophe is inevitable, um, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, and it's mm. also, to mm. be honest, it's an excuse to do nothing. It's an excuse to do nothing. But I also think it's kind of more than that. I mean, I think there is something about, it's a kind of privileged pettiness, you know, because, you know, at the end of the day, the crisis is not the making of billions of people in Asia. The crisis is the making of people like us in developed countries in the West. And if what we you know, that kind of idea that I'll go away and live on a farm because it's all too hard just seems to me to be a complete abdication of our responsibility to do something about it. You know, and, you know, my, my honest feeling would be we are in a situation where there are a range of outcomes. You know, one of mm. them is that we fix the world, make it a better place and we stop climate catastrophe. The other is that we go to six degrees of warming and the planet dies, you know, mm. um, the Between is, those two extremes. Yeah, yeah, the reality is we're not actually going to get either of those extremes. The question is at which end of that scale. Mm. And, you know, stuff can happen along the way. So, I mean, it seems to me that you can't, you actually just can't, despair is a way of giving up. You know, despair is a way of, it's a way of abdicating your responsibility to do more. You know, so, I mean, it, it yeah, so I, I, the kind of funny thing where I, I worry about hope because it seems to me to be another form of denial a lot of the time, but simultaneously I actually think despair is kind of unacceptable. Hope's essential really, isn't it? Yeah. James, thank you so very much for talking to us today. It's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you. Um, I can commend to listeners not just The Ghost Species, which is a really exceptional book, but if you are at all interested in what, James has been saying about climate change and frankly I don't see how you couldn't be I really would also commend his non-fiction writing to you there's a particularly outstanding essay that he wrote for Mianjin recently and some other really excellent non-fiction writing that he's done so James thank you so much for this having this conversation with me today oh thank you for having me it's been wonderful I've really enjoyed it thank you for listening to books 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 if you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberdy.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.